back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. All rise. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, it's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School Broadcast. How's it going, everyone? Hope you're all doing well on this Monday, the 12th day of December, right smack middle of arguably the craziest time of the year. Let's be honest, we all go a little bit too insane with the holiday season upon us. As I've told you all before, it's about the thought that matters, not the the value of the gift that you get for your family, friends, or any other loved ones in your life. But hey, the gift that keeps on giving, of course, is the sports world. As I like to refer, refer to it, the toy store. And last week at this time, as I'm recording uh, the podcast, the Mets gave their fan base a Christmas gift. After a heartbreaking weekend on which it looked like they were getting coal for Christmas, they get Justin Verlander. Well, Yankee fans, like myself, were sitting around wondering when. When are we getting our Christmas gift? And in particular, you know who that one person is that we were waiting for. You know who that one shoe to drop that every Yankee fan living, breathing on this planet was waiting for. And of course, I'm talking about Aaron Judge. Now, th- this is something that, quite frankly, I had been thinking about and almost, you know, driving me nuts. For the last eight months, ever since I was riding on a train from Metro Park in New Jersey up to New York City to go to the Yankees home opener. And I'm reading on Twitter that the Yankees did not come to terms with a deal with Aaron Judge for a contract extension before opening day. I'm thinking, oh, here we go. This is going to be a saga all year long. And the first two weeks of the season, it was, because remember, Judge struggled the first couple of weeks of the season, even heard some ridiculous boo birds. But then we saw one of the greatest offensive seasons we've ever seen with him setting the American League home run record, passing Roger Maris. Yeah, the season ended in disappointment, from the sweep to the Astros. But in general, it was a very successful season and none more so than Aaron Judge. It was the greatest bet on yourself in the history 
of not just sports, but maybe one of the greatest bet on yourselves in life. Because you have to be a pretty ballsy individual, really gutsy, to turn down what was $231 million. I mean, that's life-changing money. That's generational money. That's money that, you know, his grandkids are going to be sending their kids to great colleges for and setting them up for life with that kind of money. But it led every Yankee fan, including myself, to being nervous because free agency, as we've come to see over the years, there's always that one. There's always that one crazy owner. It's unpredictable. You never know. Like, look at last week when it came to the Mets losing Jacob DeGrom to the Texas Rangers. The Rangers gave him a contract that no one else in baseball would have given DeGrom. DeGrom could sit there and talk about all he wants that, oh, he he heard the direction of uh, the way things are going here with Chris Young and Bruce Bochy at the helm, that's nonsense. It was about the fact that he could get $222 million from another team. And you just weren't sure going into free agency, what was Aaron Judge's mindset? I mean, we saw last week the article come out from Time Magazine where he was the athlete of the year, and he was talking about how he was unhappy about the way his negotiations in spring training went when he asked the Yankees. He told the Yankees, hey, let's not make this public. Let's keep this private between ourselves. And there you have Brian Cashman once again on opening day coming out an hour and a half before the home opener uh, explaining why they didn't come to terms with Judge and what kind of contract he offered. It's probably why Judge got booed for the first couple of weeks, besides the fact he had the slump. I mean, it was an unnecessary action by Cashman, unnecessary move to, uh, allowing this to happen. And it, you know. It led to another one of these things that Cashman is seemingly always trying to do, winning the battle of public opinion, winning in the court of public opinion against a homegrown, beloved Yankee. He did it with Derek Jeter once upon a time. Uh, there were times he did it with Andy Pettit, Jorge Posada, Barney Williams. He lost every single one of those times because each time the fan base had our guys back. And that's... Seemingly what happened here. You had Yankee fans ready to get the pitchforks and lidden pieces of wood out if Aaron Judge was not retained by the New York Yankees. And you know, the you knew that this wasn't gonna happen five minutes into free agency. You knew Judge was gonna take his time. But at the same time, it was holding up the rest of free agency because he's the big fish out there as far as offensive pieces are concerned. He's the guy that, you know, many other teams had their eye on. You you saw the Dodgers, they were even talking about possibly moving Mookie Betts to second base uh, in order to bring in Aaron Judge. We know that 
his hometown team, his childhood team, the San Francisco Giants, they were pushing hard. They, I mean, it doesn't, it seems like there was a number that they wouldn't have been willing to go to to get Aaron Judge in the fold because they haven't had a star, a true game changing star since Bonds and a lot of the core of those championship teams from the last decade have either retired or moved on to other places. So they were, even as bad as they were this year, they were looking for a new face of their franchise. And then, of course, there's always the mystery team in the mix. But with last week's winter meetings, you were thinking, all right, this is finally the time it's going to happen. But here's where we saw, once again, the problem that is out there when it comes to the media. And listen, I, I have respect for the guy that I'm about to rip here. I think he does a very good job. But MLB Network's John Heyman, maybe stay off of Twitter for a little while. Maybe take a couple of steps back and say, you know what? Yeah, I got a, a podcast with Joel Sherman to do. Yeah, I'm, I've got obligations for MLB Network for... Um, all sorts of other different places, a million uh, radio spots he does each and every single week. But maybe I should lay low for a little while because this is the greatest example of A, make sure you get your facts straight, and B, how in society, not just in the media, but in society today, we all would rather be the first ones to report something rather than have all of our facts straight and be correct. Because it was at about 5.20 last Tuesday afternoon that John Heyman was posting on Twitter, Aaron Judge appears to be heading to the San Francisco Giants. And it led to a panic amongst Yankee fans. But here's the problem. When John posted that tweet, Originally, he posted it and it read, Arson Judge appears heading to the Giants. He later deleted that and and had to repost it. But so many times we see this, not just in sports media, but in general. These reporters are so quick to want to post something, so quick to want to get something out there. That they're afraid to make sure all of their sources are correct. That they're afraid to make sure that they've got all of their facts straight. That's why, you know, 10 minutes later, he's posting that someone from the Giants is letting him know that, hey, no, there's nothing but agreed upon. There's no deal in place. We're still in a waiting game here. We have nothing close with Aaron Judge at this very moment. And it, it left him looking like a, a a buffoon, looking like someone with egg on his face. Now, maybe someone, one of his other sources uh, outside of the Giants organization told him that, but he was so quick to post that that it led to one of uh, the great gaffes, one of the great you know, memes making fun of a media member that we're ever going to see it. I mean, it's unfortunate because he's a great reporter, but now for the rest of his career, people are 
on Twitter, the idiots that are out there on Twitter are going to um, keep bringing up the arson judge uh, thing. But hey, about 15 hours later, Yankee fans got to take a deep sigh of relief, a deep breath, a deep dive off of the panic meter because it happened. We brought our boy home. Our guy, Aaron Judge, agreed to a nine-year, $360 million contract to remain a New York Yankee. A contract that now, in all likelihood, will keep him a Yankee for life. And how did this happen? Simple. You know, Hal Steinbrenner is no fool. Hal Steinbrenner, he heard the boos that he received at Derek Jeter night, even though Jeter tried to calm those down. Hal knew he had to have a big offseason. This is a move a, when it comes to a generational talent. You don't let Brian Cashman handle this. You don't let the nerds handle this. You've had a personal relationship with Judge since the day you've drafted him. You've known this guy. You've gotten to know his family. This was going to be a situation where, yeah, Brian and the nerds iron out the details with Judge's agent. But the negotiations the whole time were between Judge and Hal. And and Hal simply called Aaron on Tuesday night and said, hey, you want to be a Yankee? Told him, yeah. He's like, what's it going to take? And all it took was adding a ninth year. A ninth year on a contract that, listen, in a perfect world, I'm sure the Yankees would have wanted to keep it to the original seven that they offered back in spring training. Because offering nine years to a 31-year-old outfielder, it's a risk. It, especially when, and you hope that this is in his past, but he has had some injuries in the past. And we've never seen a player at this size play until he's 40 years old. We've never seen a guy this with this size, this amount of power play and be successful beyond like 37 years old. So it is, of course, a risk, but it's a risk you have to take. This is the most popular player on your franchise since the core four. This is the best player that your franchise has developed since Derek Jeter. This is a guy that, yes, you have not won a championship with yet, but you're hopeful in the years to come that does happen. And you could not realistically look at your fan base in the eye and say, oh, we were okay with letting him walk out that door and go to the Giants or walk out the door and go to the Padres who turned out to be the mystery team offering him 10 years for $400 million. There's never been anything off the field problematic with Aaron Judge in all likelihood never will be. He's been a great leader in your locker room. He's been one of the best players in baseball since he's come to the big leagues. And last year, he pushed Mike Trout aside and became the best player in the sport. This, I mean, this was a perfect marriage, and th- this was one of those you could not let break up. This was one of those where you're saying to yourself, all right, if we're not going to 
splurge for one, this superstar than when? I mean, you gave nine years for $320 million to Garrett Cole. Of course you had to give that much and more to keep your own homegrown guy. And now in all likelihood, it's going to lead to something that is long overdue. Something that in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't actually matter as far as wins and losses on the field. It's more of ceremonial. It's more of something that the fan base likes, loves, and even the players in the locker room want. But at Aaron Judge's press conference or meeting with the media to announce this deal, in all likelihood, Hal Steinbrenner is going to name Aaron Judge the next captain of the New York Yankees, a role that has not been ceremonial filled since Derek Jeter's retirement. And quite frankly, he deserves it. He has all of the makings of being a Yankee captain. There's just one void, one column he has not filled yet. And that, of course, is winning a championship here. And it's not going to take Judge alone. Listen, you cannot... It's great that we got Judge to stay here. It's great that in all likelihood, he's going to be a Yankee for life. There was an exuberance, a happiness from Yankee fans, by large part, everywhere once this announcement was made last week. But the fact remains that they can't go into next year and just say, oh, we're going to run it back with the same team. There is things that they need to do. They need to fill left field. And I know people like uh, Oswaldo Cabrera, but he, I think, would be better off as that guy that moves around to a different spot every day. Still keep him as a regular in the lineup, playing five out of every seven games. But move him around so that everybody gets a day off once a week. And the guy, to me, to go get would be Andrew Benintendi because clearly the Pittsburgh Pirates have lost their mind and are offering or wanting a Juan Soto-like offer to get Brian Reynolds. Brian Reynolds is a good player, but he's not Juan Soto. So Benintendi, to me, would seem like the perfect fit because we saw him play well here last year up until the injury. He's... Not a big home run guy, but also not a big strikeout guy. He's an on-base guy. Perfect guy for the top of your lineup. Going to hit around 300. And it is a lefty bat for that lineup. Something that they're clearly lacking outside of Anthony Rizzo. You need to add another starting pitcher to this team because you're confident in Cole. Last year was a big breakout year for Nestor Cortez. And Severino, you expect to come back with a strong year heading into his free agency. But what are you getting out of Frankie Montas if he's even still here next year? I mean, he, he was god-awful since coming over from Oakland. And you'd like to limit as seeing him as much in big spots. Are you, are you really confident in going to one of the kids in the fifth starter role, whether it's Clark Smith or... 
you know, someone else from the minor leagues, like a Will Warren, someone along those lines. They they really need to add a starting pitcher to this rotation. And the, the name you keep hearing is Carlos Rodon, who the last two years has had the kind of transformation when he moved from the White Sox to uh, the San Francisco Giants that Garrett Cole had going from the Pittsburgh Pirates to the Houston Astros, turning from a guy that, oh, we saw had great stuff, has a lot of potential, but turned into a Cy Young contender, turned into a guy that strikes out a lot of batters and is just a dominant force. The question is, how much are you willing to spend on the guy? Because he has had uh, some shoulder problems in the past. He's 30 years old, and you hope that he's far removed from those injuries concerns. But it feels like right now, while the Yankees and him are a marriage that wants to happen, it's about ironing out the details between the two sides. It's about them... uh, saying to uh, themselves, all right, how many years? How lo- how long do we want to go and um, make this marriage between our two sides go? The, the Yankees would prefer to go- be only four or five years, while it sounds like Rodon wants a seven-year deal. And that's what may keep him as a free agent for a little while, because I'm not sure, even as a left-handed pitcher, how many teams would really be willing to go to that seventh year. I mean, like I said, there's always that crazy team. There's always that mystery owner. And we saw the Padres all last week seem to be that mystery team with everybody before somebody finally accepted uh, their contract offer. Could they be that team with them losing Sean Manaya as a free agent to the Giants. Could it be, you know, the, uh, the Giants re-signing uh, him uh, or in keeping uh, their guy that has been so good for them the last couple of years. Is there someone else out there lurking that we may not be thinking about? And then of course, with the Yankees, you got to figure out, the second base shortstop combo. Are you going to really let one of these kids be the shortstop going into next year? Or do they possibly sign a veteran? And we've been talking about this since the trade deadline. Is Glaber Torres going to be traded, possibly setting uh, second base to be open for either Peraza or Volpe to move from short over to second base? There's still so many questions that have to be added, uh, answered with the Yankees. Left field, lefty bat, starter, second base shortstop combo. Which reliever in the bullpen is going to be their closer? Whether it be the recently re-signed Tommy Kane, Lee, Clay Holmes, Jonathan Lewisaga. And the good thing is, still got time. We got to start getting some work done here, uh, Yankees front office, because while the fan base is happy about Judge being back, it can't just be Judge being back, let's run it back with the uh, same team, and we'll just pick and file from the resale cart at Kmart. That will not be considered acceptable. All right, a lot left to get to 
today uh, give you some thoughts on a disappointing loss by the Jets yesterday and where their quarterback situation sits, as well as look around the NFL with all of the current playoff standings, playoff situations, as well as something went down in the NBA that made me very happy over the weekend. And I'll get back to some more MLB free agency in a little bit. So a lot to get to for the next about 40, 45 minutes or so here. Glad you guys could join me today. So at this time, as I tell you each and every single week, please sit back, relax, help put your feet up if you feel like it, and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. With the, the time of the year that we're in, you would think that I'm very positive today. You would think that it's positive vibes only, especially with Christmas about to be upon us, the New Year's coming up, one last chance for us to be festive and have a great time this year with our family, friends, and loved ones. And you know, I try to live my life with positivity, try to live my life with the, the mantra of you know, positive vibes, but why am I sitting here on this Monday afternoon here. Why am I sitting here with that sinking feeling that I typically have late in a season when it comes to the New York Jets? I've never been much of that person that says, oh, when your team surprises you, just be happy, just be joyous. If No, there are those people out there that will say, Oh, if I told you at this point in the calendar, the Jets would be seven and six and be in position to uh, get into the playoffs, you'd be happy. No, I've never been of that mindset. I, I've always been of the mindset that you have to adjust your expectations as you get new information. You have to adjust what you think about a team compared to from where they were in the preseason to where they are right now. And my preseason prediction for the Jets was them going 7-10. and 10. And I'm not saying they're going to completely fall apart and go 7-10 and 10, because that would be an outright disaster after that four-game winning streak earlier this year, getting off to what was a 7-4 and four start and going from being a cute story to being everyone saying, hey, the Jets are a good team. This is not the same old Jets. They have a defense that can play with anybody. They are a team that you do not want to play late in the season and will be a pain in the ass to have to go up against if you were to see them in the postseason. But I'm starting to get that sinking feeling again when it comes to the New York Jets. Even though you know, I've watched these last two weeks. I've watched these last two games. And 
they've been right in the mix there. Yeah, they were underdogs against the Vikings, underdogs against the Packers, or against the Bills, excuse me. But they were right there at the very end, had every opportunity to win both of these games. Should have beat the Vikings last week. And yesterday, in what was miserable weather conditions, talking rain from the onset, wind that, unless you were throwing the ball the direction of the Jets' sidelines early in the game, you weren't completing a pass in the first half. And then a obnoxious snowfall in the second half that made it just slippery enough to be you know, kind of an annoying thing to deal with. Now, I'm watching the Jets. They're in this. They're grinding it out against the Buffalo Bills. While they're not putting anything on the board in the first half, not really able to put a effective, efficient drives on, together they're keeping uh, the buffalo bills offense in check trying to win somewhat of a semblance of a field position battle here and you're looking at it at the two minute warning seeing a scoreless game saying hey just get me to halftime uh scoreless here and we think we got a shot here but that's when the blunders started that's when the mistakes began of course the first being I still, to this moment, don't know what the hell C.J. Mosley was thinking. and Was he trying to make this a highlight reel play for him? Was he trying to make a you know, Troy Palomalo-like moment, trying to just say, hey, everybody look at me, look at what I did? Because that's what it kind of feels like. That, that was a selfish, boneheaded play, what he did there. And if you didn't see it, it's fourth and one. Bills got the ball on their own 39-yard line with about a minute and a half to go before uh, halftime. And quite frankly, at this point, I'm not even sure if the Bills were going to actually snap the ball there, take a delay, a game penalty, and then kick the ball away because they – Clearly showed throughout the first half that discretion was the better part of valor. We're not going for a lot of fourth and shorts. We're just saying, hey, we don't believe the Jets could drive 80 yards down the field against us here. And we're kicking the ball away uh, when necessary. I think that clearly they were trying to draw the Jets offside. And they got someone to be impatient. But the last one I would have thought it would be would be the veteran of the group. The oldest guy on uh, this defense being C.J. Mosley that made the outrageous mistake there trying to jump over the Bills' offensive line before the ball was even snapped, leading to the Bills continuing that drive. And you're seeing about... 30 seconds later, Allen connect with Dawson Knox down the field for the go-ahead score. And then, you know, second half, Jets come right out, score a touchdown. You're starting to feel good uh, about things. Yeah, the Bills responded with a touchdown of uh, their own. But this is when the sinking feeling started to set in because Mike White is playing his ass off. He's getting hit left and right uh, by this uh, Bills defensive front out there with a, a makeshift offensive line in front of them, doing the, the best that they absolutely could. 
And he takes that one shot from Matt Milano that, quite frankly, I'm surprised he got up from. You you saw Milano essentially spear him like he was WWE wrestler Roman Reigns. He leveled Mike White. Mike White is laying there in a heap. I'm like, oh my God, are we going to have to cart Mike off the field here? And no, that this is when it all started to go awry. When Joe Flacco had to come into this game, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a disaster. And what do you know? First play, he fumbles the football away. Because, you know, let's face it, Joe Flacco, I wouldn't be sad. I wouldn't cry. Hell, I would probably do cartwheels if the Jets woke up today and released Joe Flacco. I, I don't understand the point of him being around. He looked like he was a guy disinterested yesterday. He looked like someone who wanted no part in being in that game. Looked like someone who was still maybe bitter, still annoyed that, oh, they went to Mike White when replacing Zach Wilson rather than giving him another shot as the starter. But I I would have, uh, no, seriously, I would seriously consider cutting uh, Joe Flacco today because, quite frankly to me, he serves no point on this team right now other than being a guy that, maybe as a veteran presence in that locker room. You respect what he's done in his career, winning a Super Bowl, being a Super Bowl MVP, but he should not even be in the league at this point. And that fumble would lead to another Bills score there. Thankfully, the Jet defense held them to a field goal. But then even every time the Jets look ready to crawl back in this game, something would come back to bite them. Even though they were holding Buffalo to field goals in the second half, Allen um, was not able to move the football much down the field in his own right unless he was running the ball himself. Had a horrible day accuracy-wise. It was just a terrible day for wide receivers unless your name uh, was Garrett Wilson. And just when it looks like the Jets are going to crawl back in this game, first you get the Injury to Quinton Williams, which we're still not sure how bad it's going to be and if if he's going to miss any significant time here. And then five minutes ago, you're, you're down by 11. Jets are starting to drive the football, get a little bit of momentum after the blocked punt uh, by uh, Jermaine Johnson that created the safety there. But Michael Carter, who's not been great for this team by any stretch this year, fumbles the football right back to uh, Buffalo. And from there, it was pretty much good night delights. So now, I know they've been competitive the last two weeks. And I don't want to seem like the moral victory guy. I'm, I've never been big into that as well. But I feel like I've seen this story when it comes to Jets where they tease me and then late in the season blow up and miss the playoffs. Will it be the year with Brett Favre or the year of the butt fumble where they were, what, 8-5 with three games to go and then 
lost all of their remaining games and missed the postseason. Why should I believe that this is going to be anything different? And it's it's not it's not anything to do with any of the players on this team. This defense is awesome. They've found a running back in uh, in Zonovan Knight that they're like, how did this kid not get drafted? How did someone not give him a chance? Where, why wasn't he sharing reps with Brees Hall in the beginning of the season? Why did you know, Joe Douglas give up a draft pick to go get James Robinson and his uh, whiny little self? He's provided a spark to this offense the last several weeks. And Mike White, there should be no doubt, unless he's injured, that he should be the quarterback the rest of this year. Figure it out about Mike White. The only real telling sign that you could have these last couple weeks, unless Mike White is injured and cannot play, is how they handle the backup quarterback spot. Because if this coming week against the Lions... For a fourth straight game, you have Zach Wilson not dressed, inactive as the third-string quarterback. That truly tells the side they have given up on Zach Wilson. You can't say that, oh, he's part of the future, and oh, we think he's going to get back out on the field this year, which myself and every other Jet fan um, that cares about actually winning games would throw up at the sight of that. And I'm sure you would have a locker room mutiny if they ever went that route. Mike Wark had has not been at fault these last two weeks. Has he missed the throw here or there? Yeah, but he's played his ass off and put them in position to win each one of the, these games. But it's just... It's a cynicalness as a Jeff fan. It's something that's just trapped in my head, trapped in my heart that until they get over this hump, get over this of missing the playoffs for 11, what could be 12 straight years, I'm not going to stop thinking about this. I mean, hell, with these back-to-back losses, they've for the time being, lost control of their own destiny. They sit on the outside looking in because they didn't get much help this past week. Now, the only real help that they got was Baker Mayfield uh, going uh, to the Rams and pulling off a surprising fourth quarter comeback against the Raiders. The Raiders getting their eighth loss and looking like a team that's going nowhere. We saw last night the Chargers at full strength, how dangerous they can be if they have their weapons for an entire game, were able to survive a late comeback by the Dolphins, were able to keep Tyreek Hill in check, even despite one of the craziest fumble recoveries that we will ever see. And a, a play that I'm sitting there eating, eating dinner, watching this, I'm like, he did not just do that. He did not just recover that ball and pull a wrap around around everybody and go 60 yards for a touchdown. But the Dolphins were not able to do the Jets any favors. And that's not a position you want to be at this time of year where you're hoping for help from someone else. Especially when you look at the, the Jets' schedule. The Jets' schedule has gotten difficult going down the stretch here. When you take a look into the fact that they've got four games left, two at home, two on uh, the road. 
and the next two games, this Sunday at home against the Lions, and then a week from Thursday against the Jaguars, those are no gimmies. Those are no, you know, oh, we think we're going to absolutely win those games, especially because the Jaguars and the Lions are still in the mix for the playoffs. Even as disgusting as it sounds, the Jacksonville Jaguars are only two games behind the Tennessee Titans uh, for the AFC South. And those two teams play again in Week 18. And the Lions, after their awful start, they've been one of the best teams in football for the last two months. They've got an offense that continuously is going up and down the field. Jared Goff is playing mistake-free football. Every week, it seems like a different one of their receivers or running backs is uh, turning into you know the star of the show for them. And they're capitalizing off other teams' mistakes, whether it be the, the, the nonsense that the Vikings tried to do yesterday with Cook as the Wildcat quarterback, and he fumbles at the goal line before halftime. Or the the chance that they uh, decide to take Dan Campbell being risky, going for it on a fourth and eight in his own territory with that fake uh, punt, the direct snap to Moore that led to a, a touchdown drive. There's a sense of fearlessness with the Lions and the Jaguars that they're turning into those teams that maybe they won't necessarily catch up and make the playoffs, but you don't want to play them late in the year. They're playing, hey, careless football playing. Hey, let's just go out there, give it our best shot, uh, throw our best effort against the wall and show that we're not going to roll over even if we are an underdog. After that, you got to go play uh, the Seahawks in Seattle. And the Jets got somewhat of a favor by uh, their old buddy uh, Sam Darnold yesterday sh- providing a blueprint on how to calm down the Seahawks. The Seahawks have started to really been making a lot of mistakes in recent weeks before a s- Sunday night matchup and I-, I think this will be Sunday night football in week 18. If this is for a playoff spot, Jets-Dolphins. I, I would be stunned if they don't move this to Sunday night football between these two matchup between these two franchises. But there, that final four-game stretch, even though it's right in front of the Jets, there's no gimmies on that. There's no oh absolute wins right there. The Jets could, while the Jets could easily go 4-0, 3-1 against that, they could also easily go 0-4, 1-3 against that schedule. So while the roster plays like it's not same old Jets, the coaching staff front office gives you a confidence. Uh, Mike White, as, as quarterback, has provided a spark, a new energy for not just this team, but this fan base. I can't get over that hurdle of continuously thinking same old Jets. Until they make the postseason. You know, I said on Facebook yesterday, now my family keeps pestering me here two weeks out of Christmas saying, Mike, what do you want for Christmas? You've given us nothing so far. 
honestly all I want for Christmas outside of good health for my family and my friends. All I want for Christmas is for the Jets to make the playoffs. And right now, what seemed like a reality two weeks ago is now feeling like it's going to turn into a nightmare. A nightmare that I hope I wake up from and I hope I am proven wrong about. Go take another break here, come back on the other side and talk more NFL because plenty of things that went on uh, yesterday and still a lot up in the air uh, with a month to go. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. What I'm about to say, I don't think is outlandish. I don't think is too over the top, too crazy to say. In fact, I feel like I should be the one to make this executive call and be the one to say what ESPN, CBS, Fox, the NFL in general does not have the guts to say. Enough with putting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in prime spots for the rest of this year enough with putting them at 425 enough with putting them as a headliner each and every single week they're an embarrassment to watch they are a god-awful football team i don't know whether it's tom brady is starting to look like a 45 year old quarterback or that defense you know losing a lot of pieces from uh, the championship team two years ago. The fact that their offensive line seems to be in shreds, that Chris Godwin, one week he looks like he's back from ACL surgery, another week he looks like it's his first time playing football in three years. Mike Evans uh, having balls thrown over him that two years ago he would have caught, or watching the corpse of Julio Jones and uh, Leonard Fournette out there but enough with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. All right, they are an outright embarrassment to watch as a football team. I don't care that they had some kind of miraculous comeback uh, last Monday night uh, on Monday night football. They're playing the Saints, and the Saints haven't gotten out of their own way all year long. They, they're just having one of uh, those years. That the only reason Tampa Bay is still in the mix for a playoff spot is the fact that they are in the NFC South. And right now, you look at it, they have as well of a chance of missing the playoffs as they do making it. You look at yesterday, I mentioned before, Sam Darnold and the Panthers went up to Seattle, took advantage of what's become a mistake-prone Geno Smith and Seahawks team, got off to an early lead, were able to run the football efficiently. They've gotten themselves to 5-8. and eight. They're 4-4 four and four since Steve Wilkes took over as the head coach. Even though, yeah, you're not going to be as good or efficient a team without a talent like Christian McCaffrey, 
they've remained in the hunt. They've remained in the battle here. And they play the the Buccaneers in the final couple of weeks of the season. They've got a shot as awful, as hideous as it sounds, to come back and win the NFC South. You look at their remaining schedule. They're playing the Steelers this week. Who who knows if Kenny Pickett's going to play after uh, the concussion uh, protocol scare that he had yesterday. Then they got the Lions, both those games at home. Then they go play the Bucks in Week 17 before playing the Saints in Week 18. Even at uh, five and eight, they are playing meaningful football going down the stretch. So whether it's in the division or hell, you can't even rule out the wild card with how uh, each week the Commanders, the Giants, and the Seahawks are seemingly allowing teams back in the mix there. But the Panthers have a real shot at crawling back into this thing and being that team that everybody is disgusted by by the end of this year. I mean, can you imagine? They're 7-10 and 10 and they're hosting a playoff game as NFC South champions. I, you thought it was bad years ago when the Seahawks, before they had Russell Wilson, when the Seahawks went 7-9 and nine and hosted a playoff game, uh, the whole beast mode insanity, when they did that, imagine a double-digit loss team getting to host a playoff team. And with the way that South division is right now, in all likelihood, it's going to happen. And it's going to be a beautiful sight to see. Now, what is becoming clear is that I'm not going to have the NFC North to rely on to do me any favors. Because even with the Ravens losing Lamar Jackson, they've continuously won games. They've uh, remained in uh, the hunt here for not just the playoffs, but the division. Now, got some help yesterday with Mitchell Drabisky, uh deciding to be uh, turnover prone in the red zone, throwing three interceptions, and the Ravens offense not having to do much uh, other than not turn over the football. But you look at the Bengals, they're at almost full strength. They did lose Tyler Boyd uh, yesterday to a dislocated finger, but they got Chase back. You got Mixon back. Now, the Burrow and the crew won their fifth straight yesterday after overcoming a hurdle that he's surprisingly not done so far this year in beat or in his career in beating the Browns. Both of those teams, the way things look right now, are going to make the postseason unless one of them just falls apart. So you're looking at an AFC wildcard picture where it, I'll be fair here. I'll be nice about this and say, you're looking at six teams for two spots. Now, I want to rule out the Raiders, but they're still technically alive. And it would take a million tiebreakers for uh, Jacksonville uh, to get in. But realistically, you got Miami, the Chargers, the Jets, and the Patriots uh, pending Monday Night Football tonight with the uh, Patriots in Arizona to play the Cardinals. 
these four teams battling for two spots here and Miami's still not even out of the mix for the division. They go play Buffalo next Saturday night in uh, a lovely Orchard Park there where uh, I'm not sure if they've predicted snow there yet or not. And any day you, you wake up there, there could be snow coming down. But it's going to be a tough road for Miami coming down the stretch as their schedule is sandwiched around matchups against AFC East opponents with the Bills this week and then the Jets in the final week. They've got a lot of cold weather games coming up for the remainder of the schedule with the exception of the Jets in week 18. And you wonder, how's Tua going to handle this? We've seen it him in the past not handled the cold weather late in the season as well. Are they going to fall apart based on the weather, based on the schedule, or are they going to remain strong and get into the postseason? Now, finally, a team that was eliminated from the postseason, hopefully I could stop talking about, uh, was the Denver Broncos as they went from getting blown out to making a miraculous comeback to then losing. And a lot of this was based on you know, Kansas City sometimes just being too cool for school, as I've said. You now, Patrick Mahomes, they're up 27, and he made two foolish interceptions there in the second quarter that allowed Denver to get back in the game before halftime. But probably what killed any momentum that the Broncos were building in that second half was losing Russell Wilson. I know uh, Brett Rippon came in and uh, led a touchdown drive there, but there's only so much you can expect from somebody like that in a relief role against a team like Kansas City. I mean, Kansas City has shown that when they have their mind on it, they will beat anybody in the league. The problem is that they'll get out to these huge leads and then their ego comes out. Now, Patrick Mahomes will have one nice flip, uh, one nice play that looks like a video game to uh, McKinnon and then just decide to be careless with the football. And that's why you're looking at him having three interceptions yesterday and why even though they did the most important thing, won the game, and he threw for 350 yards, he probably let some people back in the MVP race. Probably let you know the likes of a Joe Burrow or a Tyreek Hill or Josh Allen, even as bad as he was yesterday, let them back into the MVP race. And you know, one of the worst things that you can have at this time of the year is an injury. And the the 49ers, I wonder how many hits they can take. Because I've said when healthy, they could be that team that slows down the Philadelphia Eagles, although they didn't look like they were being slowed down at all by the Giants yesterday, who I think the cute story for the New York Giants is just about run thin. But the 49ers, you start to wonder, how many more of these injuries can they take? I mean, they, they lose Garoppolo uh, 
last week, but Brock Purdy steps in and showed a confidence, showed a swagger about him, realized that, oh, be protective of the football and just try to play my game. And the, the team has a good shot to win this game. But they even in a what was a blowout victory yesterday, a, a dominant showing by their defense, and now they move on to play uh, the Seahawks this Thursday. They're going to be doing that without uh, Debo Samuel, who went down with what you're hoping is only a high ankle sprain uh, the, yesterday. Because at first you thought with the way he crumbled, at first you're thinking it's the ACL. Then the way he's gripping his ankle and in tears uh, in the fashion that he was, you're thinking that, oh my God, his season's over. He broke something uh, there. But there's only, you know, there's only so many hits that a team can take, even as deep and talented as they are. And right now, uh, Nick Bose is playing uh, with a uh, parcel uh, strain in his hamstring. I was surprised that they didn't pull him earlier than they did. Now you lose Debo. You're without Garoppolo losing your second quarterback this year. I mean, they're a fun team to watch. They're uh, immensely talented, greatly coached. But there's only so many hits that you can take as far as big-time, important players before it really starts to sink in. That's why, you know, when Debo comes back, I, I know... His versatility is one of his great weapons. You've got to just strictly use him as a wide receiver because you now have Christian McCaffrey. You have plenty of backs on that team. Don't put Debo at this risk again, especially if you have grand expectations to go deep into uh, the playoffs this year and be that team that is threatening the Eagles for uh supremacy in the NFC because I don't think it's the Dallas Cowboys. I mean you can't you can't play the Texans yesterday and barely squeak by against them when they're getting stopped at the goal line, running multiple quarterbacks out there and you you barely squeak by with a last minute victory against them. You know, Dak's throwing um, multiple interceptions in the first half. He's been the most turnover-prone quarterback in the sport since he came back from injury. Now, the, the Cowboys, they have a, one big explosive week against the Colts, and they felt themselves too much going up against a team that they should have blown out of the building early on. Should have never come to this point. That's why, you know, as much as Cowboy fans like to puff up their chest saying, yo, we them boys. No, you ain't. All right? You struggled against the the Texans. What do you think you're going to do on Christmas Eve against the Eagles? If you can't, if you can barely squeak by against the Texans, you really think that you're going to be playing the Eagles, even though it's in your own building and going to be able to pull that nonsense against them? The Eagles can beat you in every single possible way. They can make you make stupid mistakes like we saw Julian Love do yesterday. Rather than tackle Devontae Smith, he's trying to uh, rob it like he's a center fielder in baseball. Then you get the, the ridiculousness of that bounced punt that uh, really 
was good night delights for the Giants. You're going to turn the game off and not miss the damn thing after that. So the Cowboys are not beating the Eagles playing like that. But if they're healthy, even with Brock Purdy, the 49ers, they got a shot. They got all of the ingredients that travels well. A ground game, a great defense, and hey, look what they did last year against the Packers in the postseason in frigid temperatures in the middle of a snowstorm. You're telling me that they couldn't go into Philadelphia in January and do the same damn thing? While I might not put my money on it, I also wouldn't rule it out. All right, going to take one last break here. Come back on the other side. Close things out for this Monday afternoon. Continue keeping sports with them threat. I'll be back. get back to talking about Major League Baseball's offseason and the free agency so far. There's one thing that really caught my eye over the last couple of days. Now, I haven't talked much NBA in recent weeks. And while at some point I will get back to giving weekly thoughts on everything going on in the NBA Especially with how close the the standings are right now. I mean, you know, a three day span in the Eastern Conference can take you from tenth all the way up to fourth. I mean, you, that that's how close it is right now. You have the the Bulls at eleven and fifteen, and there are only you know five games or four games, excuse me, behind the, the Brooklyn Nets for the fourth spot. And then you look out west, you know, a, a good couple of days could take you from seventh all the way up to first. I mean, you, you, it's that nip and tuck. But I will say this. One thing that really caught my eye in the last couple of days, and I am all here for this, I am 100% support this, is this growing rivalry, this feud that's beginning between the New Orleans Pelicans and the Phoenix Suns. Now, on paper, you would just say, oh, just dribble the basketball out late in the game. Don't take uh, a shot when you're up by a big, when you're the team with the lead. But I love what Zion Williamson did the other night with that windmill dunk against the Phoenix Suns. And then to follow it up last night with leading the Pelicans in victory, back-to-back games of 35 points against uh, the Suns. I absolutely loved it. I loved that there was hostility between the two sides after that game. I love the grittiness, the intensity that there was between these two teams all throughout the game last night. Even you know the the uh, the pissed off look that it brought to Chris Paul's face when he fouled out of the game in overtime because they overturned uh, the what was initially called a foul on Zion. Jumping into him on a three-point attempt. Replay showed Paul stuck his legs out and initiated the contact. 
I, I love the bitterness. I love the, the grittiness between these two sides. I, I mean, I don't want something to break out into being like the malice at the palace. But I've long said I, what annoys me in the NBA is this whole we're all best friends thing that is going on. That's why even even though he's a, a dirty player, a cheap shot artist, what Patrick Beverly brings to the sport, while it's too far over the line sometimes, and some of his suspensions deserve to be you know, worse than they really are. Now, I love that when they weren't teammates, him and Russell Westbrook couldn't stand each other. Now that's had to be somewhat calmed down with them being teammates. But I, I, I love it when guys you know, actually get after each other and actually show a, a fight and intensity in the, the NBA. You know, kind of like things were in the, the 90s. Now, they'll never let that physicality, that kind of style of play back in this sport. But I love rivalries in this sport. I love you know, you know, when two teams don't oh, shake hands and make dinner reservations after the game. Not everybody has to be each other's best friend, and it's fine. It gives us something to talk about. It gives us something to be excited about, and that's what the NBA needs more of. And the Pelicans still remember last year falling short to the Suns in the postseason after what was an exciting six-game uh, series. They're putting the Suns on notice saying, hey, we're here, we're for real, and you just hope Zion stays healthy because right now he's got them at the top of the Western Conference. He's playing at an MVP level. They've won seven games in a row. They've been as good as anybody to start this season. And just imagine he stays healthy, carries this on through the entire season. They go into the playoffs. No one's going to want to play New Orleans. No one's going to be looking at that as that team that, they say, hey, I hope we get them in the first round. They're going to be saying, no, we want to avoid them as long as possible. I'm going to only assume that out in San Francisco on the radio stations and television networks, they're not doing cartwheels today over the Sean Manaya signing with the Giants. Because, A, Sean Manaya is a eh kind of pitcher, um, especially last year with the Padres, put up almost a five ERA. But they had their hearts dead on set on getting Aaron Judge. And last Wednesday morning, their hearts were broken, uh, unfortunately, for them. And now you're looking at an NL West where outside of the Colorado Rockies, everyone's getting better around you. The Dodgers are looking at making upgrades. The San Diego Padres, the San Diego Padres all week long were trying to be that team. They were trying to be that team that would outspend everybody. They tried to get Trey Turner. He turned out, he turned down the, I, 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 this is still phenomenal. And I, I wish I was in this kind of lifestyle where you could turn down $40 million and still be okay for the rest of your life. The, I, the, the guts by Trey Turner, it, it showed that he was dead on set on getting to Philadelphia. The fact that he would turn down 341 and take 300 for 11 years from the San Diego Padres. But uh, the, the Padres would finally get 
a guy after you know, the, not being able to get Trey Turner, not being able to get Aaron Judge, were able to ink uh, Xander Bogarts to an 11-year deal for $280 million. And listen, Xander Bogarts has never been able to match what he did in 2019. That was an MVP-level season. He was awesome all year, had a career-high 33 home runs, and has only 38 home runs combined the last two years. His slugging percentage is about 80 points down from what it was that season. But he's still played at an all-star level these last couple of years. That's why, no, I and I don't get what the Boston Red Sox are doing. This was their homegrown guy. This is him uh, along with uh, a few others that, you know, that they're letting their homegrown guys, you know, Mookie Betts, uh, the, letting these guys just walk out the door without even trying to sign them. It's not like they had a $300 million payroll and were looking to uh, shed some uh, dead weight there. You know, they, they, they let Bogarts go. They, they, let, they trade away uh, Betts. You wonder, you know, is the third baseman going to be next? Is he on his way out of there as well? Because look at them. Right now, they have a payroll going into next year at $231.8 million. That's before even, you know, potential incentives come in. Last year, they had a payroll of $209.1 million. So their payroll is down over $70 million from last year. Outside of Chris Sale, you're not paying anyone any significant money, but they didn't even seemingly go after um, Bogarts at all. That doesn't seem like they're going to re-sign Nathan Avaldi. They went out there, were willing to give $16 million a year to Kenley Jansen. And while Kenley Jansen's a good closer, he's not someone that I'm you know, forking over $16 million for, especially because who knows how he's going to be able to react to the pitch clock rules next year with how slow his delivery is. I think about it. They're still paying money to both Dustin Pedroia and Manny Ramirez on deferred payments. But the Red Sox want to act like they're some kind of small market team. What they're doing right now makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And no, uh, whether it's on WEEI, any of the stations up there in uh, Boston, Red Sox fans should be flipping the hell out. And rightfully so, because what they are doing is just downright insane, just downright ridiculous, if you ask me, when it comes to a big market team. Now, a team that act, is acting like a big market team is the New York Mets. And the Mets have been able to quickly move on from Jacob DeGrom and spend money where it needed to be spent. Last week during the podcast, we talked about them signing Justin Verlander. Well, since then, they've made a, a, a lot of moves. They've been very active. Now, in about a 45-minute span uh, last Wednesday, they were able to both re-sign Brandon Nemo and add David Robertson. And while they probably gave Brandon Nemo more money than he deserves, 
Brandon Nimmo, a guy who's a good player, a solid um, major league center fielder. He's now making all-star level money at over $20 million a year. Eight years for $162 million is little much, if you ask me, for a guy like Nimmo. I I would have wanted to keep it at like five for 18 per. At, at most, and that might even be stretching it because this is got this guy is not a transcendent guy. This is this is a guy that, you know, quite frankly, if I'm a Met fan, even though he's a homegrown guy, you might be screaming about this being your version of the Jacoby Ellsbury contract in the next couple of years. But he was a guy you needed to bring back. Was the table setter in your lineup? But they didn't stop there. I thought it was very important that they added a guy like David Robertson to that bullpen. Because you still have Adovino and Seth Lugo as free agents. Maybe they bring back one of those two guys. But David Robertson has proven it in this area. Look what he did with the New York Yankees all those years as both a setup man and closer. Has shown he can handle the late innings um, in a, a big spot. And while he doesn't throw as hard as he necessarily does, he still throws hard enough to be effective, still has you know, enough left in the tank that he will be a very key, very important guy there as the eighth inning setup man ahead of uh, Edwin Diaz. Now, the one concerning signing they made and I would have been concerned about this for anybody, but since it's with the Mets, I, I get to talk about this a little bit, is signing the Japanese right-hander, uh, Kaoda uh, Kenga. I, I hope I pronounced that right. Giving him five for $75 million. I don't think this is going to be Keigawa because this guy was no, essentially a legend in Japan. He's still only 30 years old, but you look at the resume he put together in Japan, uh, helping lead his team, the Giants over there, to six championships, just being an absolute rock star, being one of the the top pitchers, still uh, able to throw in the mid-upper 90s with a killer splitter. Everything you read about this guy, you like. My concern is, the concern I have for every one of these pitchers that comes over from Japan. Because they run on a different schedule than pitchers here in the big leagues do. While in the big in Major League Baseball, you're going once every five days. Now, sometimes it, there'll be a day off in there that will give you an extra day of rest in between starts. In the Japan League, you're pitching once a week. You're set on one day during that entire season that that's your day you're pitching. And I don't know what day that was for him. No, but they pitch once a week over there and go with a six-man rotation. That's why you know, I've never been the biggest in the world on the six-man rotation. I, I think at times it can take away uh, starts from your top guy. But if there was ever a time for the Mets to go for that, ever a time for them to go with a six-man rotation, it's right now. Because look at this rotation. You have Justin Verlander, 
40 years old. You have Max Scherzer, 38 years old. They added Jose Quintana, good signing, but he's had some injury troubles in the past. So has Carlos Carrasco as your fifth starter. He's had his fair share of injury problems. I'm not saying I would go strict six-man rotation the entire year. Now, when there's a day off in the mix there, then you can eliminate that guy, and that guy can be available out of the bullpen, whether it's a uh, David Peterson or someone else uh, from their minors, uh, uh, Tyler McGill, someone, whoever you view as that next man up for the Mets rotation. But you saw it work with the Astros last year, where they had Verlander, Lance McCullers, and then four very good young starting pitchers that they were able to give everybody reasonable enough a rest and build up those starters' durability and keep them strong throughout the season. To me, this is a route that the Mets should do. Go with a six-man rotation for as much as possible. I, I Like I said, eliminate the six-man when necessary. I know it will make Max Scherzer annoyed, but he spent multiple times on the IL last year with oblique injuries. He's not getting any younger, and his delivery is not getting any less violent. Justin Verlander, while I like the signing, I don't think it was uh, that outrageous. He uh, is 40 years old. At some point, for everybody, Father Time says no as far as what you physically can do. You want to protect him as much as possible because if, if your ultimate goal is winning the World Series, you want him there at the very end. You want him to be available as much as possible in October for you and not burn him dry from April through September. So if, to me... If there was any time to go six-man rotation, it's for the Mets this coming year. But, hey, they've made a lot of good moves uh, this offseason. Still have a lot of spots in that bullpen that they need to fill and figure out what they're going to do with the the young kids, uh, whether it be uh, Alvarez or Beatty. But the the future does look... um, Bright does look promising for the New York Mets. You just hope that the postseason history of their manager, Buck Showalter, does not get in the way of their grand championship plans. Because we know how much of a failure Buck has been in the postseason. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 from Monday, December 12th, 2022. Everyone, please have a great night. Have a fun, safe, happy, healthy week. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. But until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you, I don't want to hear you, and I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.